Hi there, I'm Paul Mitchell, speaker and author and founder of The Human Enterprise. Well, welcome to Enterprise Radio, where we interview transformational leaders from all walks of life, from business, community, sports and the arts. You'll soon be listening to Dr. Ron Quickshank from the Graves Golf Academy on the sunny shores of the Queensland Gold Coast. And up front, I've got to say to you that this interview is much more than just about the game of golf. It's about the life lessons and business lessons from the game of golf from one of the world's foremost behavioural scientists who also happens to be a qualified golf coach. So listen as Dr. Ron brings alive lessons such as how to face up to the realities of business and how that will engage your team even more so. Being clear on your life purpose and your business purpose. A shortcut to excellence by simply modeling the beliefs, the attitudes and the values of the successful leaders all around you. Uh, the importance of identifying personal and business patterns and how that can save you so much time and energy. Uh, and the ultimate goal of every leader, what is it? Well, Ron will let us know. Again, enjoy listening to Dr. Ron and Enterprise Radio. As you may know, it's one of several resources we provide for you to be the best leader you can be and to truly build the human enterprise in your organisation. Well, hello there to, to all our listeners. Just got to let you know where we are. We are on the wonderful Palmer Colonial Golf Course on sunny, sunny uh, Gold Coast of, of Queensland in, um, in Australia. And we're overlooking a, a beautiful course and we're about to interview Dr. Ron before we both go and have a, um, a great game of golf. So first of all, welcome, Ron. Thank you. Happy to be here and happy that we're going to go play golf shortly. <laughs> Fantastic. It's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, uh, Ron, for our listeners, what, what brings you to Australia? What's been the main purpose coming here? Well, I've had a lifelong fear of great white sharks and crocodiles. Is that the great white shark, Greg Norman, or is it just great white sharks? I'm only? going to leave it at that <laughs> as a golfer. So I thought I'd had to come here and conquer my fears. But uh, the, the real reason, really, there's really twofold. One is that we had a great business opportunity in as much as the uh, golf group that we are aligned with has a very large uh, database and customer base here. And we saw an opportunity to be able to come in and expand it in services and, and uh, across Australia. And number two is curiosity. All through my working experience, by happen chance or by not, I've had a couple of great Australian friends. And I've always thought they were really fun and bright and clever and unique individuals. And I've often wondered, you know, what's that culture like? And having an opportunity to come here and take a look at it has just been a delight. Well, that's fantastic. I guess they're two big things that leaders are often um, looking at, and that is, you know, great cultures. And, of course, great cultures come from great curiosity. So how's it been for you so far? Uh, love it. <laughs> love it. Um, well, anyway, again, thank you for uh, being involved with um, Enterprise Radio. And you might just want to let people know um, a bit about your background. Obviously, most people here would know you initially as a um, as a behavioural scientist and a, and a and a golf instructor, but your career is a very varied one and has uh, a lot of different elements to it. So maybe you could just give us a, a pot shot of your um, or a potpourri of your, your career today. Well, it's uh, you know when you get to be old enough, you have a long history. So and I think it's both of those for me. 
Essentially, I think of myself and define myself primarily as a behavioral scientist. And along the way, I think this intense curiosity I've got about other things has caused me to, to uh, stray occasionally and give me a variety of jobs. If you look at, at my CV over the years, there's really a lot of, a lot of variation in it and, uh, and by choice. But that, you know, we need to keep our curiosity and our learning up. And so for me, it was all about you know, how can we do that and getting into an environment where we could continue to learn and satisfy uh, our, you know, my terms of my need to satisfy myself in terms of understanding what's going on in the world and, and how to interact with it. It's taken me down some different, uh, some very different paths from the military, you know, early What was on. your job in the military? Uh, in my, I was a uh, uh, intelligence uh, person and um, spent, uh, I was a volunteer, a Canadian volunteer, one of the few uh, unusual people to to go south during the Vietnam War, and I wound up in Vietnam and spent did a couple tours in Vietnam and uh, learned a lot there. You know, one of the one of the things when I think about jobs and, and is kind of what do you learn from each job? What is you know what is what's your what's your takeaway from there? And so, if I look at my career, you can just see learning stacking up. For example, in the military, uh, I really as a sergeant, I was a you know my a rank of sergeant. Really, what I wound up walking away from that was understanding that uh, extraordinary results can only be produced inside of a team. For me personally. I mean, you can, have, you can be an extraordinary single contributor, but for me, it was really about doing both, that you had to take advantage of, of the team and understand the dynamics of a team such that you produce the outcomes you're looking for that are built around care and mutual respect and trust and feeling and, and you know, within the context of highly defined objectives. So on that, I mean, that's, that's great. That, uh, let's, let's pick up some of those uh, lessons uh, for, our, for our listeners here. One, uh, that the first lesson is no matter what you're doing, no matter what role you're in, you can always learn from it. I'll talk about how you disrupt things later on, even the single plane swing is an example of that curiosity disrupting the norm. But I just, um, you talked about you, that you extraordinary results come from teamwork. Is there anything specifically uh, from those days in Vietnam and in the military regarding teamwork that you think is really relevant for leaders of today? Well, if you think about what what's necessary inside of teamwork, there, you know, there's there's the stages and understanding of stages that that it is constant amongst humans. I believe that the first thing that we must do is go through a process by which we identify and become included inside of a group. You know, one who is in part, you know, we talk about it as, are you in the group or are you out of the group? There's a constant decision being made about whether I'm in and out. Right. Now, as a leader, you can control those variables. We change pay schedules, we change leaders, we change mission, we change vision, we change strategies. People will decide either to be included or excluded inside of that. An important part of being a leader is finding the uh, right set of conditions by which people will choose to be uh, inside of your, of your objectives and vision. I think a second part of learned lessons from that is understanding how to get organized internally, so who's on top, who's on bottom. Those are the issues that need to be resolved. How do we create the pecking order so that it is both effective uh, and efficient? I, uh, it's interesting, a couple of things there, I just to sort of go up, the first one is, yeah, leaders, 
absolutely need to make people included, and yet you can't make people uh, included. You can only, first of all, set those conditions, set the environment exactly. for that to happen. And the second one is that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, organisation required, which, of course, the military is well known for. So other roles that you've had and lessons for our listeners from those roles, Ron? Well, there's, you know, if, if you look <laughs> over the course, after I got out of the military, one of the, one of the little jobs I had, which uh, was really more for... Uh, supporting myself initially while I was starting to go through university was I got a job uh, capturing escaped felons from the prison system. Wow. And uh, that, that, now you go, why would that be on my well, list I, of... I, I, the first thing I said, this is a brilliant uh, introduction to Australia because basically we're, uh, we're initially a, uh, a country of felons, so if you can catch us, that would be great. Well, no wonder I identify so clearly. But yeah. uh, we're, Lessons uh, learned from that role. What an interesting role. Well, it was, you know, what it really was was learning that people are people. We, I was actually very successful at doing that, and the reason was when, I, when they tasked me with this, which, and my initial response was, you got to be kidding, this, I'm, I have no interest in doing this, I'm not trained, this, this is not where I want to be. They really came at it and said, look, as, an ori as a behavioral science guy in your orientation, so I took a look at the behaviors of people that escape. And I pulled all the files out, and I started looking at the behaviors of these people that escaped. And it turned out that about 98% of them just go home. Wow. So we actually were phenomenally successful because what I did was uh, anybody, as soon as somebody uh, I was reported or put on a case, I found out where they lived. And I found out the majority of times, if I was there before they got home, that um, You'd find them there. they would find. And then I found out that they were... They had escaped for some, usually some family reason or a wife that they thought was uh, cheating on them or a girlfriend or a kid problem with their kid. They felt this compelling need to, re to do it. Now, the lesson out of that was people are people yeah. and that uh, they're responding to the same six regardless of where they are, what their set of circumstances are, what their culture is, that they're still responding to the common basic needs of human beings. And the other lesson I draw from that too is... Uh, under pressure or trying to escape, it's amazing how people go back to their own, their own prison, which is the prison of their beliefs, the, yes. the prison of, uh, which doesn't, doesn't release them at all, uh, basically keeps them captured. So um, let's talk about, let's move from, because I know you've had other CEO roles as well. Yeah. Um, let's move from that, I guess, into, into golf. Um, it's a really interesting combination with your business background, your military background, and I guess the, what the, the PhD is in behavioral science. Yeah, so, social psychology. Social yeah. psychology. Yeah. Well, Sociological bend. Plus a... Um, <laughs> plus a um, um, a, 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 a registered golf uh, professional. Um, what are some of the, the lessons from, I guess, golf that leaders could adapt? And I know that every one of our listeners w won't be a golfer, but it is interesting always to get parallels from other areas. Are there yeah. any um, lessons that immediately come uh, to mind? Yeah, there's, uh, to me, I think it's never ending, really. I'm constantly learning about myself through the game of golf. And uh, so you take, I mean, if you look at it from a specific point or a general point, you can talk about, for example, in golf, we have a rule that says, play it like it lies. Well, to me, that's very appropriate as both metaphor and analogy, really, uh, for making a proper assessment of the environment. One of the things we see in business is that many times the people inside of a specific business aren't really monitoring what's going on. And of course, we have the classic example of the company that is a really efficient maker of buggy whips, and they can turn out 10,000 buggy whips a day, beautifully handcrafted, magnificent. The problem is there's only a market drive for about 3,000 a day. 
And so they're completely out of context inside of their environment. So play it like it lies. It means that you have to be able to properly assess the environment, assess the situation, what we would call assess the lie. Anytime you approach a ball, you could be 10 feet from the edge of a green and you might have five different kinds of shots because based on the lie, it might be sitting down deep in the grass, it might be in mud, it might be covered in, in, you know, in wet grass. And that would each one of those sets of conditions would require a different kind of different, shot. Yeah. So we constantly have to be alert to what the environment's bringing. I guess looking at that too, it's interesting that uh, one of those best-known books uh, was that Good to Great, where uh, Jim Collins talked about the Stockdale Paradox. Right. And he said there's uh, two things that uh, differentiate great leaders. They face reality and they never give up hope. Seems to me that play it like it lies is very much face reality. Whether the ball's totally. covered in mud, whether it's plugged or whatever, we need to face that reality. And we also need to never give up hope in terms of visualising the possibility of the next shot, visualising a better world for your, for your customers, for your team, uh, for our community. So I love that, play it like it lies. Uh, Ron, you were about to say another lesson. Well, I, th I think one of it is also is understanding your purpose for playing the game. You know, we all sort of think about golf and we have an internalized model of what it is. Well, as you find out very quickly, most people have their own reason for playing golf. For some, it's social. For some, it's exercise. For some, it is business. For some, it is sports. For some, it's more an internalized need to be competent at a certain task that I've taken on. For others, it's about being able to demonstrate competence about what's being on. So I think what I see when people are playing golf is oftentimes we don't really understand what our vision is for ourselves inside of the game. And I think it's an important part of learning to come to love the game, learn to be good at it, learn to be competent at it, uh, and uh, be able to constantly use that as a guidepost for your own pleasure inside mm. of the game. What a, what a wonderful lesson, both personally and professionally. I mean, Simon Sinek is getting a lot of publicity. I think one of the uh, biggest uh, TED Talks at the moment is Start With Why. Uh, similar concept, Start With Why, purpose playing the game. On a personal note, I've got to say I've been playing for a while. I have never had as much joy as I've had recently uh, with yourself and your son Blade in terms of the the uh, learning this, the, the single plane swing. I mean, for me, um, yeah, I love the game, love the social part, but it's really just the joy of it. And, uh, and I think that was sort of starting to dwindle a little bit from my game. And now that uh, having come to uh, Graves Golf Academy in, in Australia on the Gold Coast and, um, you know, having various chats with, with yourself and your son Blade, it really has brought a, a whole new meaning of joy back to the game. So I thank you for that. And uh, just a great reminder of, of, of purpose. Other lessons. I mean, I could go on forever, but maybe... So, so, well, that's it. So could I. You know, another one, as you were talking, that came to mind is this whole idea of strategy. One of the things is having a plan to win and having a plan to play uh, on every hole. Right. But also having a plan on how to learn the game. We find that mo you know, the way golf has been taught uh, traditionally, I think, is, not a, is a poor model of learning which was based on an apprentice model, which is you come out and you watch a good golfer swing a while and then you try to imitate it. Well, it turns out that there's a whole set of systems and there's a whole set of structure and there's a whole strategy to understanding about how to learn the game. I'm all about accelerating the learning process. And, and so there is a set of rules and regulations that are based on biomechanics and also mental components that allow us to pick up and accelerate the acquisition of the game. Having that clear and being clear about that is, is having a strategy. You know, I always ask people, what is strategy? And one of the questions I like, I have a very simple 
definition for strategy, which is from a mutual friend of ours, which is you have a plan to win. Mm. And and so having sounds like Dr. Deezus. it sounds just like him, and and I've used it for years. Uh, and for me, that is absolutely critical to every hole is having not, but also for every shot, and also for every putt, for every shot. So let's take that again once again into uh, into business. Um, having a having a plan for uh, well, you know, having a plan to play and having and learning the game. Many say it maybe it's an overused metaphor that, that the business is a bit of a game. Um, how would you, you know, some of our listeners are, are younger leaders at the beginning of their careers, um, and if they are going to acquire knowledge in the game of business, is there a, a, a better way of doing that based on your golfing knowledge? Is there, a, is there a way to accelerate rather than the apprentice model, I'll look at what my leader does, good, bad or indifferent. Is there, is there a better way for, for younger managers, younger leaders to learn the game of business? Absolutely. Um... Much of my career has been oriented towards what you and I would call modeling. And <clears throat> for you know, modeling, let's define what I, the way, when I use the term modeling, my definition of modeling is, is about a process by which we capture and code and replicate a specific skill. Now, I would liken it to baking a cake. What I, if you're gonna go bake a cake, there's a very specific process that you use in order to bake that cake. It'd be very helpful to put some grease on the pan before you put the flour in. Might be really helpful to mix the stuff up before you put it together, but also to mix it up in a very specific way, sequence and order, so that it's going to rise properly and do it in a way that allows you to produce the uh, the best result, which is a cake that comes out that looks good, that gets out of the pan easily and, and, and is properly working. So modeling is very much like like baking a cake in many ways. It's, you know, it's finding a good model. It's being able to capture and code and then replicate. Now, what do we mean replicating? Once I understand the sequence and order by which something happens, we can then begin to, we would call it a heuristic model, meaning that we want to make it into a teachable model. So I want to teach myself how to do something. So, it, so once again, back to the, I guess a business situation. Modeling, we find we find a, a great model. Um, how do we do that? How do we know a good model from a like if man, if young managers are looking for a good model? How do they actually capture the learning? So, for example, one of the things that we used to do with um, some of the undergraduate programs or so grad programs in different businesses was actually just um, have have them actually shadow some of the top leaders in the business for a while. Uh, in fact, we did reverse mentoring while they shadowed some of the top leaders. The reverse mentoring was those young people. If you're under 12, you don't really get technology. Those young, uh, the young grads would come into the business and teach some of the older managers a bit about technology. Are there ways that you think young managers could find a great model and actually capture and code exactly what they're doing? Yeah, there, there is. And I mean, there is a learning process to it. There's really, in my mind, there's really three steps to modeling. One is understanding contextually the beliefs, attitudes, and values relative to the skill you're trying to learn. So if you're trying to learn superior sales, if you're trying to learn how to run a CAD machine, if you're trying to learn how to take a great photograph, if you're turning, learning how to be a good salesperson, find somebody that's really good contextually inside of that task. So the first step is understanding the beliefs and the attitudes and values they bring to the table. A great salesperson probably has some beliefs about being turned down, probably have some beliefs about themselves, probably have some beliefs about their ability to handle rejection. The second step that's necessary to model is that we need to understand the sequence and syntax by which people do things. 
How do they organize themselves in order to produce the superior results? Like the, go back to my cake example. If you're a good salesperson, you will find that there will start to be a pattern that emerges of how one organizes themselves to be a good salesperson. If you're a good CEO or an effective CEO, not good, but effective. If you're a good mom, whatever it is your talent, if you're a good golfer, there will be a sequence. So the first one is understanding the beliefs and values and attitudes relevant and contextual to the task. The second one is understanding the syntax and sequence of how I do stuff. And the third one is understanding the physiology and the energetics that's brought so that I can arrange my body, mind, spirit in a way that allows me to optimize it. It is very similar. I'll give you an example. When I was doing a project for Polaroid many years ago where we were studying the top CAD operators, computer-aided design, yes, yes. and the old model was this called Sun System, and it took, it took three years to learn how to do it. There was a couple thousand commands, and, and our task was to get this down to six weeks of learning. And the idea was that we had to understand very quickly how is it these people organize themselves. And so, so it was really about being able to understand the sequence and the syntax and being able to pull out the most important elements of it. So you know, most modeling falls into, the ta into mental skills. But there's also physical skills. Uh, you know, we've done, I've done lots of things with, around physical skills, whether it's golf, whether it's modeling, whether it's uh, kayaking, whether it's uh, martial arts. Uh, I did a project for the United States Army where we modeled the top rifle shooters in the world wow. and reduced the training by, uh, we didn't reduce the training time, we increased the uh, and eliminated uh, people that were disqualifying themselves during uh, practice with the same amount of ammunition and had three standard deviations of improvement that we got at Fort Benning. Excellent. That sounds like there was, is that the one involved with uh, Anthony Robbins at one point? That, well, this was the early work for Tony and then finished yeah. it up, yeah. yes. So let's just uh, review that. So the, the first thing is, and it's uh, something very relevant to, to golf or relevant to sport, but, but particularly relevant to uh, coaching these days, and what's something we emphasize in our own coaching is that's the inner game and the outer game. We've, we tend to focus so much on the outer game, the four steps of delegation, the four steps of constructive criticism. What you're really saying is start with the inner game, start with the beliefs, start with the values, start with the philosophy, and model. What is, what is what, when you get an extraordinary performer, what are their beliefs, what are their values within that context? The second thing is we talk about patterns or rituals. There's always, you'll see, you know, failure lose clues, success lose clues. What are the rituals? What are the patterns of behaviours these people are doing? And the other thing I like, which is so easily forgotten, is what's the physiology of excellence that they go into, whatever it is they're going into. And I guess one of those, uh, and, and certainly I guess it sounds like you're, the, you're tracking uh, those things very much when, um, when you're doing your um, modelling studies. So on that, one of the things that we, we do find with great leaders is that they are very, very aware of, of their of their challenges and their vulnerabilities. So as a, either a golf professional or as a, as a leader, what's been, I guess, one of the biggest career or biggest challenges that you've had in your uh, professional life, either in the business side or on the golf side, and how did you deal with that? It, well, you know, it depends on that question for me. It kind of depends on whether you're talking general or specific. Yeah. At a general level, if I look at my career, a big challenge for me over time has been boredom and needing new challenges in my role as a leader. And what that creates for the people that are following 
is that I've been I have had a pattern of constantly looking for the new, constantly looking for the new challenges, constantly moving around. And what happens is those people that are really responsible for execution and implementation sometimes feel that I'm moving on to new territories before they get to set up the problem mm -hmm. uh, and, and resolve the problem inside of the, inside of the organization that they've been tasked with doing. And I've learned over the course of the years that I have to just calm myself down at times and, spe or in, in, actually it's more like isolate the need for newness and the need for challenge and the need for looking at new directions and, and put it into the right context with the right people inside of the organization. I think it's a, a really uh, one great piece of self-awareness and, and something that a lot of entrepreneurs really suffer from. They're going on to that next new thing. Uh, we share, once again, the work of Isaac Adesis, where he talks about a democracy, uh, democracy in terms of decision-making, but almost uh, dictatorship in terms of execution. So democracy and dictatorship, he uses the word, or, or rather democracy and dictatorship, and he uses the word democracy. What I'm hearing is this, this um, although you, you love the newness, the following through and the execution is something that, although you can do it, not necessarily where your energy lies. Is that a, is that a fair... For me, that is an accurate self-assessment. Now, I've recognized that. Yeah. It, I mean, after a few, you know, some spectacular sure. successes and spectacular failures, yeah. you recognize yeah. that. You start to see that pattern. So how do you now deal with it? I mean, you're yeah, aware of yourself. Well, the, the, you know, the way for me of really dealing with it is to recognize the vulnerability initially. Right. And then to establish and surround myself with uh, people that are good at those things that I am not. Yeah and to recognize that I've got to have the patience to allow them to do what they do best. Yep. And you know, one of the patterns I go, because I'm always looking at the new stuff, I will, I'm very good at pattern recognition. So I'll yep. see a pattern, and then for me it becomes a reality. Well, the other people inside of your organization might not see it as a reality yet. So if I'm acting as if it's a reality, and they're over there trying to set up technical systems, operational systems, administrative systems, goal path systems, strategies to support this old vision, and I'm over here going, well, there's a new one. It's a very frustrating experience for them. So it's a matter of putting myself in the context with the team of people that I really trust mm. and that people that I know are competent and then allowing them to do what they do, and they allow me to do what I do, but setting up those role and those role definitions and those expectations on the front end and consciously so that we get stuff done. Because yes. you still have got to, I mean, ultimately, you've got to be able to get the job done. A wise man once said to me, you've got to play the ball as it lies. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. I guess, uh, so uh, uh, in summary there, our learning is, look, know what your skills are, but know, one back to your early learnings, is that no one makes it on their own. It's all about teamwork and it's about a complementary team. We need that energy, that entrepreneurial energy of newness and disrupting things, but we also need, and you recognise that need for that, that, that follow-through. And some people are very, very good at that, and you only get that in a complementary team. Yeah. Let's get a bit more personal. Um, what any any real personal vulnerabilities that have been, uh, you know, maybe you've recognised them, maybe not, that have actually come up in your personal life that uh, that there's lessons for us here too. Because I mean, you've got all this knowledge, um, you've got a massive business knowledge, a massive sporting knowledge, a massive psychology. Yet being human, we still have our issues, and I'm wondering how how you deal with those. Mm. Well, I, you know, to me. An effective model, I mean, there's, we, all, we all have our own strengths, we all have our own weaknesses. I actually believe that many of, of the strengths become a weakness and many of the weaknesses can become a strength. And you really have to go through a self-analytic period 
for, the ultimate goal for me of leadership is create followership, and which I think is one of the most misunderstood. So for me personally, I'm a fairly internalized person, meaning that if you you know if you do any testing on me, you have an external or internal, or you have extroverted or introverted. In terms of mentally, I fall very much into the introverted model, right. which means that I can think about something and that becomes my new reality. I've had to learn over time that this is a weakness and that this is a vulnerability and learn that I must come outside of myself and start to pay attention to what's going on mm -hmm. in my environment. And I'm not always good at assessing it. So that means I have to set up good technical and operational and uh, administrative feedback systems so that I can keep an accurate representation of the world out there. And oftentimes that's done by people that I, mm. that I care about inside of my system. I've used a model for years that you, that's fun, and that is the Star Trek model, and I talk about it as a whole brain. I really think it's, a, I think, really think it's a, an excellent model. If you think about the, imagine a four-leg uh, quadrant with four pieces in it, You've got Captain Kirk, the vision, go where no man has gone before. You know, you've got Scotty, the medical guy who's interested in human and people and feelings and emotions. You've got Spock, who's all about analytics and brain and going through the, uh, the mental component. And then you've got Scotty, who's the engineer and the mechanic designed to... If you look at those four pieces of an organization, it does a pretty good job at defining the kind of people you need to have around and recognize that all those components must be accommodated. Wow, some great, some great lessons on that, Ron. What I love about that is this, this whole concept of followership. We have, a, we have a, a, a workshop called Why Should Anyone Be Led By You by Goffey and Jones, which is about authentic leadership, and it really emphasizes that you're, you're not a leader just because of your position. You're a leader in terms of the number of followers you generate. And the second thing is uh, that, that concept that we all have stuff and no one sees their own stuff. We need someone outside of ourselves giving us feedback, like a great uh, professional uh, uh, sports person would have a coach, like an actor would have a director. And uh, also love your Star Trek model. We can add that now, listeners. We, we used to talk about Star Wars, and now we have Star Trek. And of course, for Ron, uh, if you really want to know how to lead in Australia, very, very important that you actually watch the movie The Castle. It has every leadership lesson that you need to know from an Australian perspective. So let's just keep on with those leadership lessons. I guess um, not just leaders um, in Australia or Canada or the States, but you've also done a lot of work in China, I know. Do you see any fatal flaws that continually pop up that leaders have that they need to be aware of? If I, well, if I looked at it over many years, I would say there's probably the, the most fatal followership is understanding, well, it's the other way, not understanding thyself. You know, what's the, what's the statement? Understand thyself? This above all to thine own yes, self be true. Yes, to own self be true and understand thyself. To me, the height of creating followership which is the ultimate goal of leadership, is starts with self-awareness. It starts with the ability to know your own processes, starts with the ability to uh, be able to accept what's going on in the environment and then react accordingly to it. Without self-awareness, that's virtually impossible. I think another is, well, this, you, can, you, can be, you can profile yourself as a leader. One of the things I love to do inside of a leadership group or a group of executives is to ask them to define the best leader that they've ever seen, somebody that was most motivating for them personally. And it's always fascinating because the answer can lie from General Eisenhower 
to Hitler to Mother Teresa, and what, what they're doing. Right? There, right? Why, oh yes, but what do they all have in common? They all created a highly energized, motivated followership. Now, you don't have to like their their value systems. You don't have to like anything. But what they did was motivate and energize large bodies of people towards a pre-selected goal. And that means that they were activating something inside of the followership. So for me, you asked about fatal flaws. It's ability not to, to be so unself-aware that you don't see inside of the need systems of those that you're working with. So let's have a look at that one. So the first one, which I guess ties in with some other things you said, is this whole concept of self-awareness. Um, if, if what what leadership and what business is all about is managing change. With every change, there's a problem. With every problem, there's a solution. But you can't change what you're not aware of. Yes. So the first step is awareness. Not only awareness of self, the other thing you talked about, play the ball as it lies, you have to be aware of what's happening in the business. You have to know the numbers, both lead and lag indicators. So self-awareness is the first start of also therefore being aware of what's happening in the organisation as well. You had another lesson or another fatal flaw too, Ron, I believe. I, well, I think one of the things I have seen over the years is what I would call the lack of systems thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about strategic thinking, we talk about systems thinking. When, one of the things we find and we, about ourselves very quickly when we become a leader is that we must start to think in systems. And by that, recognizing that for every action I take, there's not just a reaction. There's a multitude of reactions to all of the stakeholders inside of the organization. And it's really important to be able to, to uh, think in terms of systems. How does, my, how does this decision, how does this action impact all of the stakeholders inside of the matrix? And I see, you know, if you look at how people get promoted inside of the traditional business model, it's for competence at an individual level. So I'm a great salesperson, I'm a great marketing person, I'm a great financial person. And then that person does a good job, they get promoted. What they do is bring their little tunnel vision inside of the organization so you can wind up with a CEO who thinks of himself as a financial manager or a CEO who thinks of themselves as a marketing person. And while you have to have those talents and have those skills, you still must recognize that there's still all these other functions inside of the organization and they have to be balanced and they have to be aligned. So that's that's interesting, Ron. Uh, a couple of flaws there. The one, not realizing the implications of decisions and uh, and the shadow that leaders cast and not thinking bigger picture or whole systems. Uh, one of the flaws we find is that often leaders just go through the day doing it, doing it, doing it, and without really thinking about, I guess, the legacy that they'd like to leave behind. And it's often a tough one to, to answer, and often we have senior leaders come to our programs and the, the managers will ask that CEO or senior leader, hey, what's your legacy? So the same question to you, Ron, what's the legacy you'd like to leave behind as a leader? Mitch, I've thought about that a lot over the years because early on, in my career, I was being so achievement-driven. You know, we had to get things done. We had to do things, and we had to get results, all of which are good, but I found pretty soon, and I mean by that, I mean in my 30s, I found that all that success did not produce satisfaction or happiness. And that internal reflection caused me to really make a major change in the way I viewed my role uh, as a leader, and also as a follower. I don't mind being a follower. I think it's contextual to what the role and what the task is. But as a leader, I'm very clear that when I look at the people that I would have followed and done anything for and that I worked the most energetically for, 
it was those that helped me as an individual grow and learn while creating a successful environment that made me feel part of something bigger. Wow. It's, uh, it's that whole thing of the, looking for just something bigger, something, something more meaningful, right? I, that is a fundamental to motivation. I mean, we can satisfy our own need systems, but when you tap into something that's larger than yourself, I think you start to create meaningful and memorable environments. And so for me, you say, what about the legacy? If people that I've worked with over the years wind up saying, he cared, much, he cared as much about me as he cared about himself mm. while we were creating and doing something pretty cool. Isn't that wonderful? I love that expression. No one really um, cares how much you know until they know how much you care. One of the things in terms of caring, we've, we've talked about golf a lot, and it's actually sometimes seen as, or all sporting analogies are sometimes seen as a bit sexist, but apparently that's not the case with golf. I, it was, I was fascinated by the numbers that, that you gave me regarding women's uh, participation in golf. Would you might just want to go over that quickly for us, Ron? Sure. Well, for, here in Australia, one of the it is one of the there's two growing segments in golf, and one of the fastest growing, and over the next twenty years projected to be one of the biggest is female golfers over thirty years old, thirty thirty five years old, Interesting. Yeah. and they're starting to take up the game. Let me issue talk about this idea of using sporting analogies and sporting metaphors because. There are, there's are ones that I think are sometimes inappropriate in, in certain settings, and that sure. would be, for example, military metaphors, where it's really, you know, the ultimate goal of that military is seldom seen as, as building things up. It's more about knocking things down. And also, you don't have as many women involved. But when you're actually involved in a sporting, I've become more comfortable. Where's the greatest learners, if you look at it over history? It's people that have used metaphors the great spiritual leaders, mm -hmm. all of them have been masters yes. of metaphors, yeah. master of analogy, mm -hmm. because it is a dynamic, effective, and long-term uh, growth uh, understanding, when, because you can remember a metaphor. You know, if we talk about, uh, about a carpenter being able to build a foundation for the house, that's a meaningful way to think about building a solid foundation for your yeah, business. Yeah, I love even that concept of metaphor into form meaning story and the meta meaning something even above the story. Yes, yes. Yeah. So for that, I, I never apologize for the use of a metaphor or analogy because I think it's one of the best ways to, to create memorable lessons for people. Now, and we want to be appropriate inside the context of that. Golf has actually been around for men and women for many, many years and it's growing segments, so I find it as a... Um, very appropriate for it to use as a metaphor analogy. Yeah, so, and, and remember, it, it is just a metaphor as such. So a final question for you, uh, Ron. I mean, we've got, uh, we've got a lot of uh, senior leaders that are involved with Enterprise Radio, and we've got some aspiring leaders, and we also have leaders that are, that are both. They're both leaders and they're both golfers. So is there any final lesson that you can give our leaders who happen to be golfers as well in terms of playing the game, the game of business, the game of life, and the game of golf? I think it's, for me, I would say it's something I try to do every morning when I get up and look in the mirror, and that is to say, know thyself. And I think much of it starts with the awareness of myself and how uh, who you are impacts me and how and who I am impacts you, and to be able to understand the dynamics and the relationships between us such that I seek to care to create an environment of love, care, trust, compassion, and appreciation uh, inside of the environment that we find ourselves in. 
I don't think we need to be apologetic any longer for saying let's create that kind of an environment inside the organization. The old model, model that it's all about the numbers has proven to be highly ineffective. Mm -hmm. It is about mm -hmm. a lot more than just the numbers. The numbers got to be there, yeah. but we also have to have heart there. Yeah. We also have to have spirituality of our own kind inside of that. And I think with that comes the numbers. I had the joy of coaching a leader last year who um, was running actually a business worth about US uh, $10 billion in turnover, and that's, that's a big business in anyone's mind. And, um, and what she had as a mantra was bringing more love into corporate America. And not only did she bring more love, she brought incredible results and has incredible fellowship. So you know, I think that the time has come that this is not just seen as a, as a fluffy possibility. So Ron, so much to learn from you, both in terms of your, your, your golfing background, your business background, and as a behavioral scientist. And I know that you're primarily in Australia to run the Graves Golf Academy Australia on the incredible disruptive but very powerful single plane swing. So if some of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, and we will put this on the email as well, but how, how could they actually do that? A uh, great way to do it is go to Graves, G-R-A-V-E-S, GravesGolfAustralia.com, and we have a terrific website with hours and hours of learning about the new biomechanically leveraged and advantage golf swing that we call the single plane swing. Fantastic. And once again, the listeners will put that on the, uh, the email here. So thank you, Dr. Ron Crickshank. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I really, uh, really appreciate your involvement with Enterprise Radio. And I think we need to go out and play golf. Four. <laughs> Let's play it as it lies. Thanks again, Ron. My pleasure. Take care. I hope you've enjoyed these insights on leadership and life from Dr. Ron Quitchank. For me personally, I find his background fascinating and his blend of golf and psychology so intriguing. For those who are golfers, please contact Ron on the details provided if you'd like to take your golf and certainly your love of the game to a whole new level. I'm Paul Mitchell. Until next time, find the passion, develop the skills, make the numbers and make a difference.